Welcome to the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting Podcast. You may attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-520-80640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from Heather was recorded on January 25th, 2024. Thank you. Hi, everybody. My name is Heather. I'm an adult child um, seeking to become uh, my own loving parent one day at a time through this program. Um, let's see. I, I appreciate that there was a little bit of a sketch of what uh, what I might say. Um, let's start with what it was like growing up in an, a dysfunctional family. Um, I don't know if my parents are alcoholics or not. I kind of think that they are, but um, my family was very dysfunctional. Um, both my immediate family and my extended family um, are riddled with addiction and mental illness. Um, and that affected me deeply growing up, although I didn't really realize it. Um, I didn't have a name for it. Um, I started to think about that idea of like, you know, fish couldn't tell you about water because they, you know, they swim in it every day. They don't even think about it. Um, there was a way that my family was that I can think about now as being distinctive, you know. Um, but at the time, I just thought that that was how it was. Um, so I didn't identify as an ACOA until much later. Um, what it was like growing up in my home, well, my parents, um, something was wrong with my parents. I think they were ACAs themselves. Um, I think they carried a lot of shame. Um, I think that they dealt with that shame with a lot of perfectionism and workaholism and um, feeling superior to um, and I think our family was kind of isolated in a way. Um, I think my parents like dealt with their shame by feeling like, um, our family was really, um, smart and cultured. And, um, my dad taught at a university. We moved around a lot, actually, as my dad worked on his various degrees, master's degree, and then doctorate, um, which was all about, I think, um, at least in one sense, making him feel better about himself um, because he carried so much shame. Um, my dad was a closeted gay man. Um, my mom grew up with um, really fundamentalist um, religious abuse. Um, her father was um, suffered from um, 
PTSD from World War II, although it was not diagnosed or um, understood at that time. Um, my grandmother was a nurse and very codependent. And um, both my grandmothers, actually, on my father's side and on my mother's side, had these very large suitcases um, that they called their cosmetic case. <clears throat> And in the cosmetic case was a whole bunch of prescription drugs um, that were um, prescribed by Southern doctors at the time that it was just the way that um, female problems were dealt with. Um, so both of my uh, grandmothers spent a lot of time taking naps, not being present. Um, my grandfather on my dad's side um, was extremely, um, it's kind of self selfless, selfless, a martyr. Um, his handwriting was itsy bitsy. Like you almost needed a magnifying glass to read his handwriting. He worked as an accountant for the Coca-Cola company. And, um, I think he got a lot of comfort from being an accountant and, and, writing everything neatly, very small in the ledgers and keeping track of everything. Um, so um, as an ACA, um, I carry a lot of shame um, and attempt to mitigate that um, in a couple of different major ways that I got from my parents. Um, my father is uh, very grandiose um, and I have tried to use grandiosity in my own life um, to try to overcome the sense of shame and that I'm ugly and bad and all the you know feelings that I had about myself. Um, my mother is very controlling um, and I, and that's and very perfectionistic and that's a way that i have tried to manage my feelings and my life and um the difficulties that i've had um interacting with the world and living life on life's terms um i did not understand that i was in a great deal of pain um growing up i just was in a great deal of pain. <laughs> um, one reason was that, and here, here again, you know, I, I keep referring to these things of like, I've taken on stuff from my parents, but um, my dad was a closeted gay man who felt a lot of shame about who he was. Well, from the age of two, I had um, a gender identity that was different than what my parents wanted. Um, I really... I really wished that I had been born a little boy. Um, I prayed about it. I can remember praying about it um, when I was four or five, um, that I would turn into a boy if I just prayed really hard. Um, and I, I wanted stuff that in that time, you know, um, was just, you know, quote unquote, just for boys, you know, um, I'm, happy to see that um gender stuff has gotten more flexible over time 
but when I was born, um, you know, women, I'm not saying that there weren't mavericks who were willing to um, sort of defy expectations, but, you know, when I was born, women could be teachers, you could be a librarian, you could be a sales clerk, you could be um, a dancer or an actress. Um, things were very um, limited. You could be a nurse. You know, both of my grandmothers were nurses. Um, and it was really painful to me to, to feel not seen and not supported by my parents um, as much as I wanted to be. I'm not saying they didn't support me at all. Um, my parents did um, buy me some boys' clothes and some, uh, quote unquote, boys' toys and um, things that I really treasured. Um, but overall, I got the sense that I was the wrong thing. Um, it became a very difficult thing for my parents when, you know, they would want us to go to church and um, I didn't want to wear a dress. That, that was unforgivable. To You had to wear a dress to church. And that's when I got sent to the psychologist um, because something was, you know, wrong with, seriously wrong with me that I didn't want to wear a dress to church. Um, so I started in therapy pretty early and, um, my, I was very lucky that my therapist didn't think that anything was, was wrong with me, that this was just who I was. Um, so my mom, uh, fired the therapist. Um, and eventually, um, I started self-medicating. Um, the first thing that I self-medicated with, though, was, was deprivation. Um, and it was to try and get the attention of my parents that something was wrong with me. Um, that something was that there's something was wrong with our family. Um, my dad was always working. Um, he works like three or four jobs, seriously, like he was never home. And he would work overnight typing uh documents for a for an attorney. Um and so he was never home and my mom was really unhappy being a mom um, and resented taking care of my younger brothers and tried to get my sister and I basically to do all the work. She wanted me to, she was very into the house being clean and um, taught us very early how to like get down on our knees and scrub the floors and clean the bathrooms and do the dishes. And I, I, I know how to clean, which is something, which is a good thing. You know, there were some things that come from these, this stuff that is actually helpful. Like I feel sorry for adults that never learned how to clean. Um, that's a, that's not my situation, but I have like psychological abuse around cleaning where like, 
Um, I feel depressed if things aren't clean. Um, I feel guilty if things aren't clean. This is dysfunctional. Um, so I really ended up ultimately in a kind of a battle royal with my mom over control. Basically, the message that everyone in my family got, including my dad, was that we were all responsible for her happiness. Um, and there was no concept of codependence or what that meant. You know, it was just an accepted thing that we were responsible for her happiness. And she was always very disappointed in us for letting her down. And so needless to say, like, I felt like smothered by her presence and this deprivation that I started on with my eating disorder, my anorexia, when I was a teenager was about that on the one hand, anyway, it was about separating from my mom, which is a healthy thing that teenagers are supposed to do. Um, but it was also about staving off puberty because, um, these gender issues are coming to a head. Um, and it was about controlling my body, um, feeling like I had mastery over something when I couldn't control my life with my family because um, everything always sucked. Um, and I landed myself in the hospital for that. And then, uh, they kept me in the hospital for until I gained 20 pounds and then they released me um, as if, you know, it wasn't a mental problem as if it was just a physical problem. Um, and I started with a new therapist when I got out and I also started doing drugs. So that was my next way of coping. And um, I loved doing drugs. Um, it gave me a, a sense that I could control my feelings um, and that I could have my own personal reality, which was something that I didn't know I wanted, but I found out I wanted to have my own personal reality. Um, and ultimately I um, somehow in the midst of really plummeting my senior year of high school, like, um, I, I, at one point I was an okay, I was, a, I was good student in some areas and an okay student in other areas, but then I really nosedived and I never graduated from high school, but somehow I was able to apply to art school and get in without anyone realizing that I hadn't graduated from high school. Like they, I sent a transcript at the time or I had a transcript sent at the time, you know, which I was still in high school and you're supposed to send a final transcript at the end, but somehow they didn't give me a hard time that I never did that. And I never graduated from high school. Um, so I made it to art school and I escaped to New York city to go to art school. And for a while, you know, it was, it was, um, a, a huge improvement, let's just say. And 
I, instead of being able to blame my family, I started to come face to face with my own um, limitations because of the way that I had grown up my, my, my laundry list traits. I was very uh, counter dependent. You know, we talk about dependence, interdependence is the healthy thing where people have some mutual dependence on each other or there's give and take. Um, I knew counter dependence, which is like, no one can touch me. I am a rock. I am an island. That was how I was. Um, until I got into my first relationship, um, when I became a mess of abandonment issues. Um, and this was like in stark contrast to who I had been up until that time. But it was just that I had all these successful ways of of patching myself up and sending myself out, off into battle. But I was in denial about all the wounds that I was carrying around, all the shame, all the low self-esteem. Um, and I didn't know what, what, why I was the way that I was. And I continued to, you know, be to like chain smoke and to um, be, I started being a workaholic with my uh, schoolwork. So I would get straight A's. So I, to help ward off the shame that I felt. Um, and I'm just going to fast forward to say that like, that's that kind of like mix of workaholism and um, some drug and alcohol use and a lot of codependence is how I navigated my twenties um, and thirties. Um, I was 41 when I ended up in the rooms of AA. Um, what got me into the rooms of AA was that I had almost lost my job due to partially, um, you know, my, my, uh, addiction issues and partially, um, a lack of emotional sobriety. Um, I knew that something needed to change, that I was in trouble. Um, and so that's how I got to AA and I came in willing to beat myself up. You know, that's what I thought was was what needed to happen now that I was going to fix my life and myself was I needed to go into AA and um, figure out everything that I did wrong and try to be a better person. And I'm not saying that that didn't serve me at all. I think it, it did. Like I got, I definitely, it definitely saved my life, right? I, getting off of um, the substances um, really helped. It made it so that the antidepressant I was taking could actually start working. Um, it made it so that I could actually have some awareness of what, I, how I was feeling, what I was doing. Um, but when I came to that awareness, um, I, realized that it wasn't just that I had been using alcohol and drugs, that it was, there was something else really, really, really wrong. Um, 
And I first found my way into the rooms of Al-Anon, which is where um, I met my my current girlfriend um, 11 years ago. Um, and she was going to ACOA. And I had never heard of ACOA before. And after talking with me, she suggested that I come to a meeting and just check it out. Um, I really didn't know what to expect. I wasn't expecting a big deal, actually. I I'm, I'm sure I was just kind of going out of codependence of like, okay, my, you know, I, I want my girlfriend to approve of me. So I think I'll go to, the, to her meeting with her. And um, I was really shocked when I went to my first ACOA meeting, um, I was lucky to go to a meeting that was very healthy, very big, um, very old meeting. It was 30 years old, I think at the time, um, and had a lot of old timers in it. A lot of people who've been around, um, they read the bill of rights, which was complete news to me. Um, they read Tony A's 12 steps, which was, you know, far cry from the 12 steps that I had been doing. Um, and I just, it was like for the first time, um, I felt at home somewhere, you know, I, it, it really was not long before I just felt like these are my people. These, this is my family. You know, when they read the laundry list, you know, I was horrified. It was like, someone's been reading my diary or whatever, but I also was like, thank God that somebody else has these characteristics, experiences things, the world, the way that I do. Um, and it was a real, uh, aha, not moment, you know, period of time where, um, I felt I started to feel like I was finding some answers to what had pained me so much in my life. Um, now, of course, what I learned was that it was not going to be, a, you know, an easy fix. Um, and I also learned that I basically needed to change everything <laughs> except, uh, Ironically, I did not change my partner. I still have my partner, but basically everything else has changed my relationship with my family, my job, my career, um, my relationship with myself. Um, you know, there's there's really been no stone unturned. Um, and I feel like I've gotten a lot of help with that. I haven't done it alone. Um, and then I've, I've really had a rich journey so far with this program. Um, and I've really come up against some stuff that I've been able to, to really work with and change in myself. And I've also come up against some stuff that I really haven't been able to, to change as much as I would like to, and that I still really struggle with. Um, so, you know, it, it's a mixed bag and I can't imagine um, how I could have lived life on life's terms uh, these past 
11 years without ACA. Um, I've really come through a lot of stuff. Um, probably the biggest thing being the death of my brother. Um, my younger brother died of a heroin overdose. Um, in 2016 and um if you had told me that i would be able to get through something like that without drinking or drugging i don't know if i would have believed you or that i could survive it that i wouldn't just kill myself or whatever um and you know i've not only survived it but um I've grown a lot from it because I've had to. Um, I I feel like for myself that I had had a pretty, I did have a higher power, but I had kind of a naive idea of, of higher power prior to my brother's death. Because I think somewhere I believed that when they say that, you know, everything's going to be okay because I have a higher power, that that means that nothing truly terrible is ever going to happen. Um, and I got to find out that that was not true and that I could still find a higher power's love for me, e even in the most dire circumstances, which is a gift, you know, uh, as I've heard in program it was a poorly wrapped gift you know <laughs> something that looks terrible but uh there's something really great inside if you're willing to to search for it um yeah i mean and talk about powerlessness because i knew my brother was gonna die um for for a while and i talked to him about it and i told him how much I loved him and how much I, I felt like, um, he had inside of him and, and what a one, a beautiful life he could have if he was willing to, um, believe that that was possible and try to try to have faith in a higher power, try to, I mean, he did, um, he did get sober. Um, he went to rehab and, you know, I, I carry a lot of guilt because honestly that it, so in some ways figured in, into him dying um, because he was one of those addicts that relapses without, I don't know. I, I don't know. Honestly, I'm not sure, you know, if, there was some conscious will on his part to kill himself. But anyway, he overdosed because he had no tolerance, you know? Um, and I had been trying to be supportive of his recovery, but not be controlling about it, not get in there and tell him what to do. Um, and to let him have the dignity of his own process. And it was a really fine, how do you do to realize that I gave him the dignity of his own process and he died, you know? Um, and that that 
is just what happened. And I don't have to blame anybody for it. I don't have to blame him. I don't have to blame myself. I don't have to blame my family. I certainly um, find myself sometimes self-medicating by blaming my mom and dad. Um, and, but I have an awareness about it. I can, I guess, you know, that's maybe the major gift. I can't really get rid of, um, all the different ways that I learned to dysfunctionally survive. Um, but I can have a little bit of detachment from them. I cannot 100% buy into them. I can observe myself going to one of my dysfunctional coping mechanisms. And I can, I guess, you know, uh, earlier in recovery, I thought, you know, having that awareness meant, you know, that I get to basically hate myself for it and berate myself and tell myself what a shitty individual I am because I'm still doing that dysfunctional thing. Um, but what I'm learning one day at a time is that I can actually have compassion for that and I can love myself and I can do harm reduction and I can um, pray about it and I can bring a higher power in and I can ask for help from others. I can, I have a, um, my current practice right now, I did, I did do the steps with a fellow traveler back in, 2013, I think. Um, and I highly recommend uh, doing the steps um, and doing them with a fellow traveler or a sponsor. Um, That's 30 minutes, Heather. Thank you. Um, I can't change the, you know, the, the slogan is I can't change the mind I have with the mind I have. And um, it's really important for me to get other people's perspective um on my stuff because i can't get the same you know i can't really get any distance from my own stuff it's really helpful to to get somebody else's uh witnessing me even if it just means that my codependence is then harnessed like because <laughs> i'm seeing myself through their eyes or something, you know, I think that's a good use of codependence. Um, and I'm going to have codependence. I'm not going to get rid of it. You know, the best I can do is like manage my codependence. Um, I, I still feel very codependent with my other family members. My, um, all of we kids, um, are drug addicts and uh, alcoholics, um, and and I can be very codependent with my siblings and want to you know control their choices and decisions or whatever, and um, I can't want something for someone more than they want it for themselves, you know, and I know this, and yet I just want to be honest and say that like that's something I continuously have to check in about because it's just um, really ingrained, really ingrained this idea of like, I have to make sure that you're okay. Even if it means 
telling you what to do um, so that I can be okay because I can't be okay if you're not okay. And my um, latest concept of a higher power says that I can be okay even if you're not okay. I can be okay even if I'm not okay. Um, it's okay if terrible things happen because terrible things happen and that is part of reality. Also wonderful things happen. Incredible things happen that I can't anticipate, that I can't imagine sitting here right now things that I wouldn't have dreamed of. I have a life beyond my wildest dreams. I will say that. I have a as healthy a relationship as one might expect to have when you have two ACOAs in, who are in re, long-time recovery, you know, which I think is great. Um, we have a weekly intimacy meeting where we talk about well, we we do shares, you know, five minute shares, no cross talking um, so that we can have our own experience, not a shared experience of everything. Um, it was so important because what what was mirrored to me growing up always was this idea of like that you're going to do everything together and you're basically going to like merge into this. Um, happy, sexy, something or other, you know, which is not a human being. Um, and I had to, that had to be like surgically removed um, for me to like be able to see clearly how that idea was really messing me up. Um, and um I don't know. I'm just, I'm just grateful. I'm not grateful um, because somebody said I had to be grateful and that would save me from being sad. Um, I'm grateful because I'm actually grateful. I mean, I, I believe in gratitude as a practice. And I know that when I am feeling really shitty, that, it, that the world is a very complex place. And even in the midst of really bad stuff or stuff that seems really bad, I can, think of miraculous, wonderful things that are happening all around me. Um, not so I don't feel the bad feelings, but so that I realize that there is something else besides the bad feelings to balance things out. I'm not trying to erase bad feelings anymore. You know, it's about acceptance and integration for me. Um, I, I do, uh, I work, I currently work with a fellow traveler and we talk every day and I highly recommend that practice. If you find someone that wants to do that practice with you and, um, it feels like a good fit. Um, the reason I say that is because, um, there's not a, a power dynamic, um, you know, fellow travelers are equals and, also, there's there's consistent witnessing and consistent 
opportunity to share what's really going on with me. Whereas if I have to initiate a phone call, I'm pretty anorexic about that. Initiating a phone call to someone I don't normally talk to. If you can do that, great. But I'm anorexic around that. The phone suddenly seems very heavy or I get very busy and I just can't find the time. Um, I have a home group. I'm currently um, attending um, the Limerick ACA meeting online most days. Um, It's a seven day a week meeting out of Ireland. Um, And um, I probably get to five, four or five meetings a week, which is more than um, I was doing before I found Limerick. Limerick um, happening every day. Um, I go on there when I'm uh, when I'm working, and see here I am. I'm I'm like my parents. I have this workaholism thing. You know, I go on there where I'm working. Um, I'm titrating the intimacy and whatever. Um, but it works for me. Um, and I do, um, feel a sense of consistency and I, and I know people, I feel like they're starting to know me. And, um, I think that that's important for me to stay grounded in my recovery. Um, I definitely, um, have a practice of uh, working on being a loving parent to myself. Um, It has gotten easier, but it's still challenging. Um, I oftentimes need to ask for help. Um, Just understanding what a loving parent might say or do in particular situations, but once I know I'm willing um, to try to be that encouraging force for myself, um, to not abandon my inner children, um, but to try to be there for them in a way that is compassionate and accepting of Um, how hard it is for them sometimes. Um, And, um, you know, I learned how to be the kind of parent towards myself that my parents were towards me, which was like to feel like my inner children are a nuisance and basically I need them to not bother me so I can um, try to get great things done and show everyone that I'm great so I don't feel bad about myself because it's everyone else's job to make me feel good about myself. Um, so I don't, I, tr- I try not to be that way anymore. I try to take responsibility for my own happiness and my own parenting and to try to play and have fun in my life when I can that's one of the hardest things, you know, I'm so serious about trying to do everything right and have people not be mad at me and forget to have fun. But that's what life is, is about. 
enjoying life, I think, and remembering to have fun. Um, I didn't come, my spirit didn't come to have this bodily experience to just be tortured, you know. Um, there's so much, so many possibilities, even um, as I'm getting older or whatever, to play and have fun. And I want to continue to stay mindful about that. And um, I'll just uh, wrap it up there. Thanks for letting me share. Welcome to anybody who's new. And um, uh, I guess one of my favorite slogans, if you could call it that, is um, I love you. Keep going. <laughs>